You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hi, Sasha. How are you? Doing well, Stella. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm I'm very, uh, what's the word, wary and very intrigued by this episode because it's about queer theory, which is something I've been hearing so much about. I'm no queer theorist, but I've heard so much about in recent years. I was really, really fascinated to, just stu- to study it and realize how much I didn't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah. You know, I think that we're in the age right now of trans women are women and biological sex is not real. And I mean, here in the U.S., Congress has recently proposed to stop using the words mother and father in the name of inclusivity. And I think for a lot of people out there, they're wondering, you know, what the heck? How how did we get here where the words mother and father are not inclusive? And I don't know if we can really answer those questions without understanding this very, very important foundational theory, which is all about smashing binaries and breaking down norms. And that is queer theory. So we're going to do our best without being experts. I mean, obviously, neither of us are queer theorists, probably because there's aspects of queer theory we don't quite jive with. But we'll do our best to try and explain it and then discuss how this has impacted us collectively, psychologically, and in a lot of the um, kind of psychological standards around treating gender issues. Yeah, I suppose what's very interesting for me, before we go to a definition of it, is what you've just said there about Congress and mother and father, because I, immediately my back is up, immediately, and I can see why myself and queer theory don't jive, as you say, because I think so much of female oppression for thousands of years has been based upon our reproductive systems and the fact that we do bear children. And that is very uh, heavy, uh, that carries a very heavy burden. And while I love my children, it has impacted on all sorts of ways on my life and periods from the age of, you know, 10 to to 50 and PMT because I'm a very hormonal person. And that entire, entire burden does seem to be a lot heavier than for the male. And to ride us out of of, um, oppression because of inclusivity is immediately why feminists and maybe queer theorists get annoyed with each other. But could you start us off with maybe some sort of definition? You said earlier, I heard you say, queer theory is a slippery fish. And I thought, yeah. oh my God, <laughs> yes, it is. But you tell yeah. me, have you got a definition of queer theory? Well, again, I mean, I'm going to give you my best distillation of it. So queer theory is really not just about sex and gender. Queer theory is, is a, a philosophical and academic theory that aims to look at how we know what we know. This is a theory about knowledge and reality. And queer theorists would say that knowledge is subjective, that it's constructed, and it's fluid. So this is a different understanding compared to 
objective, observable, scientific fact that is immutable and just true, true, capital T, true. So queer theory says, no, knowledge is subjective and knowledge is not necessarily aligned with the norms of what powerful entities tell us is true knowledge or not. And from what I can understand of queer theory, it's it's massively um, rooted in postmodern knowledge. The you know the postmodern knowledge you know which uh, you know denies objective reality and says there is no objective reality, there is no scientific or historic truth. Blurred the boundaries has an intense focus on language, and there's a theme of cultural relativism relativism in it. So that's kind of postmodern philosophy. And then queer theory got postmodern philosophy and ran with it fast. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Do, do you think that's appropriate yeah, to say? That? I think that's right. I mean, the, the tenets here are that this is really a philosophy about being kind of anti-normal. You know, yeah. hierarchy, moral orders, binaries are seen as illegitimate. And, you know, I know this can sound a little bit out there and a little bit loopy, but lest we forget in any good democracy, there's a questioning of how we know what we know. Gotcha. Especially these days in the days of fake news. It's mm-hmm. like, how do we know that? Who knows? Is anything? I've lost all grip on what <laughs> is actually true and what is not. So it's yeah. a really good foundational principle. How do you know? How do you know what you know? Who says it? You know that great line from, from wartime, history is written by the victors. Yes, it is. So everything we know has been written by the oppressors. Mm -hmm. And that's frightening. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know that questioning, for example, the the moral authority of the church has been a very, very important part of lots of liberation movements. And I think in Ireland, this is probably really potent. It's fascinating. We were, you know, oppressed by the English for, you know, 800 years. And they they were our rulers and they were our oppressors and we lived through famine and death and war. And then in the 1920s, 100 years ago, we we fought for our freedom and a lot of people died for our freedom. And we seamlessly handed over our oppression to the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church literally, absolutely oppressed us to such an extraordinary degree for the next 80 years. And now we find that there was sex abuse. There was an awful lot of abuse from priests. There was an awful lot of abuse of women. Unmarried mothers were treated appallingly. There was just so much shame around sex and very much, I have to say, against women and sex. And then we freed ourselves. And what are we going to put ourselves under? What shackles are we going to put ourselves under now? I do not know. And in an extraordinary push away from power structures, Ireland has become incredibly woke because it's like we are rejecting all oppression. And so Mm -hmm. we're very into the queer theory type of living now. Who knows anything? Who is power? What is power? Mm -hmm. Everything you say is wrong. Who constructed that sentence? Because queer theory, from what I can gather, you queer the topic. So you can queer time. You can queer history. You can queer death. You can queer anything. And queer means you subvert it. Right. It, is, it isn't what you think it is. Who says time is what you think it is? Who told you that? And it's just what an extraordinary expansive way of thinking. And what a destabilizing way of thinking. How the heck do you get through life if you have no idea what you know or 
or what you have been told. I mean, we, we have to find a balance, right? So before we get too deep into that, I want to point out what you said is, is absolutely right. There are all kinds of societal issues that can be queered, you know, including beauty standards for women, like who gets to decide what's attractive and what's not attractive. Uh, fat studies is a, an example of an academic field that questions whether or not the medical authorities determining what health looks like or doesn't look like, is that fair, right? And is it accurate? Um, my daughter is 13. And when you realize, you know, young, impressionable, politically engaged 13-year-olds are really, really hearing about this. So she kind of threw as an opening gambit uh, to, to conversation saying, you know, who says, who says being fat is is unhealthy? Like, who says it? And I said, well, well, a lot of people say it. <laughs> this is kind of quite well established. And she says, yeah, but, you know, I don't know that that's necessarily true. Maybe we just think it is. And I just thought, yeah, that's exactly what she should be thinking. She's 13. She's frankly being, you know, fed her political discourse on TikTok. And so now she's saying things like this and she throws out words like non-binary as as testers for conversation. And I love that she is being engaged, but I can't help bite my lip thinking how much comes out of her mouth that seems to be queer theory, rooted in queer theory. And I happen to know a lot about this sort of stuff, but the average person doesn't. And so, by the way, your 13-year-olds are being very, very indoctrinated, I would argue, by queer theory. Indoctrinated is a strong word, influenced by queer theory, mm. because TikTok is all over it. Mm. Or it is all over TikTok. Yeah. So keep going, yeah. Well, I want to get back to that, because I, I would say I probably fall somewhere in the middle of your daughter's perspective and your perspective. But, but I, I want to talk about, you know, how queer theory has also changed. When you have a philosophy that is all about questioning what we know and breaking boundaries and breaking binaries, the second a piece of, uh, the second an idea becomes the norm, it has to be broken again. So queer theory will always be evolving and changing as we incorporate different norms into our society. That's kind of part of the, the whole thing. So it was interesting, you know, I read a book in high school uh, by Kate Borenstein, who is a transgender woman, and the book is called Gender Outlaw. And at the time, I mean, I knew nothing really about queer theory, but I was interested in like LGBT issues. And I, I wanted to read something that she said in an, in an article because it's so different from how we understand trans issues today. So I'll take everybody back. I think I read this book in the 90s. And um, this is a quote, not from the book, but she was kind of commenting on her experiences. She said, uh, a couple, and by the way, this is a male person who transitioned to be a woman, and um, Kate transitioned medically in 1986, just to give you a historical timeline. So Kate says, after a couple of years of studying women, the women I was trying to be told me I wasn't one of them. Not really. It came down to three criteria, they said. One, I didn't know what it was like to be on the short end of misogyny all my life. I had leftover sense of male privilege and entitlement. And no matter that it was no longer an Audi, but a shiny new innie, it was still a penis in reference to her sex change surgery. 
So I said, to heck with you, you win. I'm not a woman. And I know for some of you, that means I can't be a lesbian. And I realized that by being not man and not woman, I was nothing. There was no word or place for me in the binary gender system. At first, it scared me, but it didn't take long to enjoy my outsider status as neither nor as nothing. My life was starting to make sense. So here we have a trans woman who's finding playfulness and acceptance in her very interesting place in society as not really a man and not really a woman either. Can I ask, when was that written? When did you read that? I read it in the 90s. Because I find that very interesting in view of our last episode where we spoke about the activism in the 90s and how they were saying, we are women, let us into all women's spaces because we are women. And so that playful, you know, which was very playfully written and beautifully written, actually, and very attractively written, became an activist intent which became harder and more, you know, it, you know that frame is it works in theory but doesn't work in practice. It, mm-hmm. it, when you're starting to get into the Vancouver Rape Relief Crisis Centre, which was, you know, the oldest crisis uh, uh, rape crisis centre in in Canada, and you know this culminated with you know trans women trying to work as female counsellors, rape victims. Uh, rejecting this idea and certainly the people who were working in the rape crisis centre saying no we do not want men who are born in that way and then this culminated with rats and I'm not exaggerating rats being nailed to the door of the crisis centre because they were defending their right to keep only born women in working in this crisis centre. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what starts as playful and fascinating theory ends up in what you could say is a classic male show of aggression. And so it, it's it's very, very interesting. And I don't want to run too far and too fast, but it, it does open things up. And I, I really, I really think it's very interesting because honestly, I buy, I buy the non-binary way of thinking. I think it's fabulous. My own sexuality is not binary. This idea that people are hetero or homo and there is no other kind of way of looking at it feels very binary and feels very restrictive. And I love the queer theory where everybody's a little bit gay. Some people are very gay. Some people are not very gay. You know, keep it fluid, keep it open. If I was to describe my sexuality, I would say spontaneous. (laughs) <laughs> I've, certainly, you know, I've certainly been, you know, very heterosexual in my in my desires, but there's no doubt about it that there is some some homosexual kind of desire within me. And I don't think I'm unusual. And I, I think there's some people who are extremely heterosexual and extremely homosexual and they're leading the discourse. But mm. queer theory is saying, OK, wait, everybody, let's get out of this binary. Yeah, I like that. And, you know, I'm thinking about Alfred Kinsey, the the researcher who's quite controversial because of some of his methods and, and reports. But, you know, he was the first person to do these thousands and thousands of interviews with people about their sexual experiences and their sexual attractions. And his research kind of indicated that there's a lot more fluidity in there than we tend to think. And I think to credit queer theory, queer theory might come in and say, you know, look at people's lived experience. 
it doesn't really jive with the conventional wisdom or the norms and the categories that have been passed down to us by therapists and researchers and lab coat scientists and the authority of of the church or whomever. So I think queer theorists, you know, are trying to say, look, there's a lot more variation and fluidity to the human experience than what these categories assign us. And I I like that. I like that. I, it goes off the rails, but I like it in that way. So, so do I. It reminds me of Michel Foucault, who is considered like the grandfather in many ways of queer theory. And he wrote the history of sexuality and he talked about the, you know, the 17, 18, 19th century and how they're considered repressively, you know, around our, we were, they were sexually repressed. If you know your history, you know, they were doing fairly extraordinary things sexually. You know what I mean? Yes, it was repressed, but my God, underground, it was not repressed. And there was an awful lot of, of acting out sexually. So, yeah, we, we are kidding ourselves to think it's clear cut. What made you in the first place, or is it very nosy for me to ask, what made you in the first place be so attracted to that book? Well, I mean, I, as my sexuality developed as a teenager, I actually only felt attractions towards girls until my probably mid-20s. And as a young person, I really, really struggled with this. I thought there was something unusual or abnormal about me. And it was only, you know, from starting to to self-accept and get curious about what I was noticing in my attractions and my desires that I became comfortable. And I came to say, you know what, this is okay. I don't have to have this rigid label on myself. And so, you know, in university, my university years, I really allowed myself to be free and experiment and date and connect with people. And it was just a pivotal, pivotal time for me not to be so um, focused on categories and labels and, and boundaries. And, you know, in those years, I also found lots of comfort in different labels. I mean, I felt myself to be and called myself a lesbian for several years. And I ended up ultimately in very stable long-term relationships with, with men. And I've been in the same relationship for 10 years. But I think having this flexible perspective on sexual orientation has freed me up not to pathologize my experiences. And so in that way, I think it's beautiful to have this flexible understanding of, of our experiences. But something interesting happens. With queer theory, because it's all about dismantling norms, everything you do becomes this kind of political act. And so every behavior you have, every thought, every desire, every kind of pattern in your life, you can subject to the question, is this breaking or upholding a norm? And that's a lot of pressure. If you think you're supposed to be transgressing no. norms all the time, you can't really tune in with what you want. So, you know, to use my experience as an example, if I had been really fixated on whether or not I'm upholding or transgressing norms, that would have really confused my own exploration that was based on my visceral experiences, just me deciding you know, what I feel and, and what I like and what I want is very different from adding this political queer identity lens on top of everything. And that's why we need to further expand this, because I don't think you're unusual. I think you're way more common 
than most people. That 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 the the development of the woman's sexuality feels very understudied. And people, other people could scoff and say, oh my God, it hasn't. But I would say, no, not in truth. I don't think we're, I think we're in the halfpenny place. I think a boy's, as far as I can kind of ascertain from my reading and from my work with clients, boy's sexuality hits hard and fast, you know, with their erections in their early teens. A girl's is a much more complicated mental kind of curve. And it seems to um, much slower. The girl's first orgasm I remember reading was, averaging at 18, while the boy's first orgasm is averaging at 12, 13. Like, that's phenomenal. That's a huge difference because the girls are sexualized because they look beautiful and they look sexual. But their actually ability to orgasm is coming later because they're not, maybe, I don't know, actually, I shouldn't say because they're not in tune. Maybe it's just their sexuality. It's certainly slow and complicated. There's another phenomenon. I, I think it's very interesting. An awful lot of girls who I meet and they are not in touch with themselves sexually. And they're, you know, teenage girls and they're just completely out of touch. There is no sexuality, no matter how much. And I don't want to be intense about it, but no matter how much I ask to explore it, it isn't there. It hasn't budded. While with boys, it has budded. There is, without a doubt, it has budded. Now, on the other end of that spectrum, all those women who come out as lesbians in late middle age, what is that? Do you know what I mean? So that immediately makes me think we don't know where we're going with women's sexuality. It's massive and it's more complicated. And frankly, it's much more queer theory oriented than perhaps the boys. Mm -hmm. Well, I think queer theory might look at that and say, you know, these are societal norms that we've imposed on girls not to be sexual, and therefore we have to kind of get rid of those norms. I think the problem that I have, though, is that when we take that to its ends, you get this kind of hyper-sexualized, like right now I know that in the LGBT community, there's such a strong influence from queer theory and, um, you know, things like, for example, BDSM or polyamory, that if, if sexuality has been morally controlled by the authorities in our culture. Queer theory says, screw the authorities, we're letting it all out of the bag. And that can be really dangerous too for young girls because I believe, based on my own experiences and based on working with lots of girls, I think women's sexuality is develops on its own time and it cannot be forced. So I think when you take this queer theory lens, and constantly try to buck norms, you can end up causing all kinds of other problems because it, it, it fails to take into account we're biological beings and not everything is a social construction. My experiences of my own sexuality developing had nothing to do with social construction. It was pure biology. That's what I think. That's what you would think, though. Queer theorists would say, yeah, you think that. Well, I mean, that's the problem is that it's so abstracted. I mean, I really believe that our bodies are such an important part of our, no, let me go back. We do not have experience without the body. We are not conscious beings without the body. So when you have a theory that's completely language-based and completely abstracted from the body, you just simply run into trouble. You're not on earth anymore. You're in kind of theoretical la-la land full of words and concepts and ideas and theoretical things. So I'm much more grounded in, in planet Earth. What is the body saying? I, I want to, before we go off into our analysis, I do want to talk a little bit about some of the 
kind of important ideas from queer theory that help us understand the gender yeah. debate today. Is that okay? Good idea. Okay. So again, you know, Judith Butler is a very important person to understand because Judith Butler was the person to talk about gender as performance. And we hear a lot about this in the trans debate, and it gets more complicated. But basically, Judith Butler says that in order to communicate our gender, it's not just biological sex that does that. It is our performance. So let's say you have a female-bodied person who's not performing femininity. She's yeah. actually signaling something to the rest of the world, which kind of causes her womanness to come into question. And we see this, for example, with butch masculine presenting women. They're not performing this hyper-femininity, and therefore society views them and says, you're not really womanly. Many butch women will say they get misgendered or they yeah. get criticized for their appearance. So I think in this way, Butler's right. She's totally right that there's something performative about how we communicate our, like, quote, gender to the world. Well, I'll just pause there and get your thoughts. I'm not sure about that. I think it is it performative. Is it performative insofar as when I walk, is it performative? When I make myself a cheese sandwich, is it performative? <laughs> you know, I, I'm a, for some people, they're very performative. For some people, they're busy thinking about things and singing a song and they're not performing. We might be reflexively because of society performing. I presume that's what she would say. But I think that is a shallow take on a biological presence. Okay. I, I would say, is the, is the breastfeeding dog performing? <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or is it just carrying out its biological urge? Okay. Well, I guess what I'm saying is that the femininity and masculinity that we're talking about, whether or not they are innate, there's still a perception component to them. It's kind of like your question, like if if there was no such thing as if there was a person by themselves on an island, would they really have a gender? I mean, I think that's really important. I don't know. I don't know if this happens to you, Stella, but I can sense in myself if I am around a group of women, like, for example, in my community, in the Arab community, there's a lot of very hyper feminine women mm. who are very glamorous always dressed up, very demure and feminine in their mannerisms. And I know when I go around my Arab friends, I end up acting a little bit more like that. Yes. And on the other hand, when I'm around women who maybe come from just a different background, who are a little more rough and tumble, I get to relax and I get to be more of that. So You're performing both. It's both, both is a performance, but I think when I'm by myself at the end of the day, um, making dinner and just talking out loud to my partner and all the guards are down, I think that's my realist self. 
but it's not an appropriate person to bring to work or to like yeah. bring to a social and gathering. You, say, you know, she says all genders, performance is everything and all genders performance or something like that. Is that what she's saying, Judith Butler? All I would argue, well, is not everything to do with my, all my interactions with everybody is performance. My friendship interactions is friend performance. My my relation, you know, my, my professional, my teacher performance, my mother performance. It's all performance. It's facets of our personality. And to pick gender and to just center it on gender feels so narrow minded. And I am very aware to just skip ahead. I'm very aware that an awful lot of people have taken that and ran with this Judith Butler concept and said, if I perform womanhood, I am a woman. Therefore, I'm a trans woman performing womanhood and I am a woman and I'm entitled to go into every space there is for women. And so I happen to know this performance is everything. Not only is it narrow because it centers everything on gender, as you say, we're not walking gender identities, you know, and there's so much more to us. Mm-hmm. And I think, oh, it's it's missing so much. Yeah, I think that's the problem when we try to drill down on one aspect of who we are as a person. It's very reductionist. And, you know, it's it can become something we really fixate and obsess over. And that self-consciousness is a problem because when we start to become self-conscious about our behavior and analyze it to death and it becomes inauthentic. And, and further than that, queer theory, if I was to, to criticize it, and I, I have done so far, but it, it has a pathological focus on sex, gender and sexuality. And it hasn't got enough focus on life and um, um, kind of the other facets of life that makes us, of being human. And so it's it's anybody who has an interest in the in the very kind of developed sense of self would say it's narrow, it's reductionist. There's more to me than my sex, sexuality and gender. There's so much more. In fact, I would say that's quite a small part of me. Mm. And I think, you know, I like to think about things from a developmental perspective. I feel like for any of us who are trying to sort ourselves out, there comes a time in a place in our lives when maybe those are the most salient aspects of who you are. Maybe you're in conflict, you know, maybe you're trying to accept something about yourself that does feel transgressive. And maybe there are periods where you do have to focus on that. But ultimately, we would want to grow larger than that so that we don't become stuck on it. Yeah. You know, I think to to go back to the idea of breaking norms and boundaries, I want to talk a little bit about how this intersects with sexual orientation. So we know that, um, you know, gay people fought really hard to have certain types of rights that were being given to others in society. For example, the right to marry, the right to adopt children, the right to have families. And Because those are, under queer theory's view, those are heteronormative things, getting married and having a a nuclear family. Because that's heteronormative, that's not seen as transgressing a boundary. So queer theory actually can come in direct conflict with the best interests of gay and lesbian people who are just trying to live in society. It's all about actually not living within the bounds of society. And it's also about not ever making categories. So you can't use categories of behavior to try and assume someone's sexuality or gender orientation. 
or, or sexual orientation or gender identity. And this is where they talk about being everything being on a spectrum and gender is on a spectrum and sexuality is on a spectrum. And I, I yeah, I, I buy both of those points, but I don't really buy that sex is on a spectrum because I think you're born biologically male. Well, I don't really buy it at all. Um, you're born biologically male or female. And that is taking into account people who are born with developmental sex disorders. And they're often called intersex, you know, and th those people have been co-opted by theory. And people like act as if that's proof that biological sex is on a spectrum. And an awful lot of people who are born with DSDs or born intersex say, how dare you? I was born a woman. And yes, I have a developmental sex disorder. That does not make me less a woman. Right. And they're saying, no, no, come over to us. Come over to us where it's all a spectrum. And you're, you know, you're actually proving our beautiful theory. So please don't talk anymore about this. If you're on a spectrum, it's, it's a beautiful place to be. And I, I, I think they have some point because some people are very masculine, male, masculine females and some people are very. So there was something in it, but that was about gender and sexuality, taking that last leap to biological sex and saying that's on a spectrum, it they lost me and I'd say they lost an awful lot of people. And I feel queer theory in itself had an awful lot out at the beginning and they, they kind of went too far. They kind of burnt themselves when they got too close to the sun like Icarus and they, they, they kind of they ate themselves because their theory became everything. Well, their theory has to eat itself because once something has become normal, it's no longer uh -huh. smashing a binary. Ooh. I mean, the, sorry, just to jump in, your point about the gay lesbian marriage and they said that's heteronormative and all that. I think they're right. I think there is a point around that. I do think um, there there is a point, but I do think an awful lot of gay and lesbian people want to live the heteronormative life. Well, there's a whole other section who don't. They want to live uh, a subversion life. So that's within the community that they have two different kind of desires to live and that feels very divisive. And I do think more than ever before, the the the, the gay, lesbian, queer community are very divided because they haven't found uniting principles and queer theory in its great ideas has really caused an awful lot of division. Mm -hmm. Well, there's... There's really a split that we see happening right now between, like, I see a lot of gay and lesbian and bisexual people who say, you know, gay, not queer, lesbian, not queer. And I, I think the word queer really implies a political perspective, which is really different from somebody's sexual orientation, which is independent of their beliefs. You know, like, yeah. whether or not you have attractions and want to live your life with a person shouldn't have anything specific to do with where your values lie. But whether you're right wing or left wing, like how, right. what a leap. Oh, you're gay, so you're left wing. Sorry, what? Yeah. Where did that come from? Well, I think partially because the Democratic Party, at least in the US, has been the first to really try and take up the, the plight of gay people fighting for their rights and have, have stood up for gay marriage and that kind of thing. But, you know, it's ironic that as the, the playing field levels and people gain more and more of these legal rights, it seems as though um, there's still a lot of conflict about whether or not sexuality is political. But according to queer theory, it is always political. And I just want to make a point about, 
you know, stereotypes, because at least with young people today, stereotypes are all the rage. Everyone talks about stereotypes being oppressive. And, um, you know, I, of course, I agree with that. I, I fall into several identity categories that we might stereotype, and I don't feel like I fall in line with any of those stereotypes. But it's what happens is when we cannot describe reality because it's stereotyped, we run into issues. So, for example, Judith Butler said, a man who reads effeminate may be consistently heterosexual and another one might be gay. We cannot read the sexuality off of gender. Now, I want to just take that statement and we'll dig into it. I agree. I agree with what Judith Butler is saying. But what happens when we, we try to make the observation after the fact that a lot of gay adults were really gender nonconforming and a lot of gay adult men describe being very effeminate as boys, what happens when we're not really supposed to make that connection anymore? We lose the information that we've known about how sexual orientation does have some overlap with femininity, masculinity, and gender nonconformity. Like, yeah. what do you think? If we're not allowed to say that, what happens to our understanding of a child who's, you know, maybe three or four years old, exhibiting incredibly feminine behavior? The parents are noticing this kid's really different. You know, he's not yeah. like our other sons. What do we tell them? Can we really say, you know, we have absolutely no clue on earth what's going to happen to this kid? Or can we say, you know, most likely he'll grow up to be a gay man and there's nothing you need to do about this. Mm. As somebody who was gender nonconforming, I, I agree. Most likely they will grow up to be a gay man. But I, I do think there's a whole other contingent of people who've yet to come out who are like me, who will say, yeah, yeah, they're gender nonconforming. Get over it. <laughs> does not mean they're gay. <laughs> do you know what I mean? For no other reason than I exist. Do, do you know what I mean? Mm. And I, I, I think you're right, though. The majority of non-conforming, gender non-conforming kids do grow up to be gay or lesbian. But the, the categories, the way queer theory wants to get rid of the categories is a very noble um, approach to take. Sadly, I think they have cemented the categories. I think that they've, what they set out to do is not what they have actually done. And so now it's like, give me 72 different names for gender rather than whatever happened to, you know, Eve Sedgwick, who was one of the kind of pioneers of queer theory, she was very much, we know nothing and don't, you know, we might, let's not try to categorize this because we, we're all a little bit everything. If you follow me, we're a little bit of everything. So let's not. And I think that has been lost. And now we're trying to madly categorize everything. So, so many and um, no doubt teenagers you meet, they're determined to categorize themselves. Mm -hmm. So it, it got lost in, in a very, in a very sad way. A great idea has got lost. Uh, like this whole plurality where we're meant to accept all the perspectives at once. Great idea. So, you know, we're all a little bit everything. I love it. But the incoherence, let's not try to make rational sense of everything. I'm like, oh, my God, no, I need some firm ground. I need terra firma. I need some 
feeling yeah. of knowledge as a principal. And yes, yeah. I know the victors wrote history and I do know, but I, I can't disregard all of science. I can't pretend that suddenly in the 21st century, us geniuses have to relook at everything. <laughs> and <laughs> that everything, Galileo, everybody, Leonardo <laughs> da Vinci, out. <laughs> Funny that you say that because the flat earthers are back, you know, I mean, it's been a couple of years now, but that's what happens when you destabilize all of knowledge. This is exactly what happens. And I want to talk about, um, you know, transsexuals, because there's this category of transsexual people who firmly um, adopt the term transsexual and they say, no, this is really the best term for me. And I'd love to contrast that with some of the new kind of trans influencers and the non-binary influencers and some of these kind of contemporary trans activists who seem to have almost like an artistically absurdist presentation. You know, like you have the guys, well, the people with the huge beards and like the glitter lipstick and they're wearing... Big boobs and their penises are showing. I mean, there, yeah. there's something really like a Picasso painting of a person with all kinds of limbs and body parts. So I think that's so different from individuals who tend to be, in my experience, a little bit older, who are transsexuals who say, no, 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 no. I know the birth sex I was born in. And I am actively trying to blend in seamlessly with the sex that I'd like to be part of. And I have no qualms about the fact that passing as the other sex is an important aspect of my transition. And in response to that, now that we've dug a bit deeper, I can't help but think, and that cements stereotypical gender roles by doing that. And while they are our friends, because they are so keen to be very accommodating to women and to women's issues because so many people who declare themselves transsexuals are very sensitive to whatever kind of concerns women have. At the same time, to want to cross gender, to want to go over to the opposite gender and to be the other gender is classic Judith Butler performance is everything. It's classic case of of cementing stereotype stereotypes of the gender roles. And so if we lived in this world, then uh, to be a classic stereotyping woman is what they wish to be and to be, a you know, a stereotypical man. And that saddens me because there's lots of ways to be a woman and lots of ways to be a man. Queer theory is like, no, let's push it all out. Let's open it all up. And if it was theory and if it was um, expansive, I would be so all about it. Sadly, it's been medicalized. Why it's been medicalized, I'm still not quite sure, but it has been medicalized. The entire queer theory dream has been medicalized. And I didn't see that in the writing. I don't think it is, Stella. I don't think it is. I think it has true- been medicalized. I don't think it's not in the writing, but the theory has. Ju- oh, no, you tell me. Yeah. Well, what I what I see happening is that a like a true queer theory believer would say, you don't need to have one drop of hormones to be a Great. valid woman. Oh, like if you're, <laughs> let's say you're a biological male. If a biological male wants to transition, queer theorist would tell this person, you're a woman, down to, you know, every cell your of your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't need to transition. 
you can which be a woman. You can, you can be in the women's prisons, which means you can work as as a female rape crisis counselor without which any intervention, without all. medical intervention, and you can completely perform. If I'm right, as a male, because queer theory would subvert your knowledge of what is a male. Is that right? So you mm-hmm. could. Yeah, so so it's it's it starts going back to language where there's this kind of extraordinary playing in language, and sometimes I feel like when I'm talking to queer theorists, I feel like I'm talking to somebody from the school debating team or the college debating team, and I'm not saying that to be dismissive, but there's such a focus on language and playing with language that I'm like, oh, okay, but can we get to the practice of it? Because when I look at the practice of it, I think, well, the practice of queer theory, for example, one jumps to mind would be drag. Queen Storytime, which started in 2015 in San Francisco, where they thought it's a great idea for for libraries to kind of bring drag queens in to talk, to to tell stories to young children, maybe four and five year olds. It's in Ireland, it's in England, it's in Europe, it's all over the place. It's really, really kind of grown as a movement. And people think, oh, yeah, this is great. Classic queer theory thinking, subverting everything, queering the situation. While I would say drag queens are fundamentally sexualized presence and they're also a very stereotypical version of womanhood. And I would say that's ostensibly queering society. While I don't think it really is queering society, it's putting forward. To me, it's a very bad, misjudged application of queer theory. Well, I've also heard the argument that because um, queer theory lends itself towards things like drag and very campy presentations, that it also centers like male people, because males are typically the drag queens that get all this attention. There are drag kings as well, certainly don't make as big of a splash in the public arena. I mean, how many drag queen shows are there right now on television? At least here in the U.S., there's a lot. And I I think, you know, it's a caricature. And I think I, I personally enjoy some aspects of drag performance when it's held within its pure entertainment value and it's not meant to be some sort of a, a you know, morally righteous person who's teaching our children about life. I just think there's, I I used to go to drag shows when I was in college and there's such an obvious sexual element to it that it's not appropriate for children. And sexual shows are great. And, you know, people who are in college should be going to things like that. I shouldn't say should, but you know what I mean? (laughs) Certainly it's, it's a very important part of society. The seedy sexual side of life needs to be kind of celebrated in its way. There, there is, there's a seedy sexual side to most of us, certainly. And I think the drag queen can kind of bring that out and it sexualizes everything. And that is fine and dandy. But no, it's not for children because I don't think children, I think they should be free from a sexual existence. And uh, that is heteronormative thinking. But I I defend it to the death because I think it's a very important um, tenet of society. How is that heteronormative? I mean, that also implies that it is homonormative to sexualize children. Okay, I shouldn't say, I know it could be considered cishet normative thinking to (laughs) say that, uh, you know, we shouldn't sexualize children. And I do know queer theory says, well, why not? Mm. 
because let's subvert everything. And when you get to the real weeds of queer theory, they say, who says we can't sexualize children? And then, you know, we all know people who have kind of argued that and then they've been put back into the closet very quickly and they they go back. But that is what queer theory is saying. Yeah. And then suddenly drag queens are now telling stories in a very sexualized manner. And I would urge listeners who don't know about this, go and look it up and you will see a very sexualized performance of a very bog standard story in libraries all over the world, including, like I say, Ireland, England and Europe and America. And it's it's a very big movement of sexualized performance in front of children who are looking kind of slack jawed at these. And you kind of go, whoa, 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 that's sexualizing children and they, they don't need it. It's kind of bringing a sexual element to children that I don't think they need. And so that's me thinking, for me, that is a problematic kind of sexualization of the world and again putting gender sexuality in the front and center of our lives when actually literature should be the emphasis in a story time in libraries that's what the emphasis and the, the if you want to be inclusive what you should be bringing in is out of work actors maybe black lesbian out of work actors or whoever do you follow me? If you want to be inclusive, you can go into minorities and make sure those, but it should be all about the literature. That should be the emphasis. It's not about gender and sexuality. And they say, yeah, gender and sexuality is about everything. So you're wrong, Stella. So I, I, I'm very uneasy about it. And the queering of literature is something that uh, now that I'm on a hobby horse, I might as well stay on it. But the queering of literature would be something that kind of makes my heart beat because I love literature. And if I hadn't become a psychotherapist, certainly literature would have been where I would have, I think, gone. And so I'm, I'm quite protective over literature. I'm very protective over children being introduced to literature. And I think it's very important that we allow them to enjoy it without it being anything to do with sex or gender. But further than that, queer theory asks us to subvert all our concepts. So we've taught children to be kind of frightened of, let's say, stranger danger. And I'm not massive into stranger danger because I happen because in my books I've explored it a lot and it's an overstated concept and it's made people very anxious, but it's a real concept. It's a very real concept that we have taught. And Aesop's fables is back from, you know, ancient Greece, like really the, you know, sixth and seventh century, a slave, an ancient a Greek slave called Aesop wrote Aesop's fables. They're amazing fables. They give, you know, children some great stories. And one of them was the wolf in sheep's clothing and about how you have to be aware of somebody who's dressed up as a sheep, but is really a wolf. And then in Scotland recently, a book called Brenda is a Sheep won the early years category. Um, and it's apparently it's been written by an LGBT writer called Morag Hood. And it deals brilliantly, and I'm quoting, deals brilliantly with ideas of difference and, and acceptance. And what it is, is Brenda's really a wolf, but she's dressed as a sheep because she wears a woolly jumper and she's got pointy teeth and she is the tallest of all the sheep. And in this story, this wolf who's dressed in sheep's clothing is welcomed into the sheep society and befriends the sheep. And therefore, children are taught about diversity and inclusivity. And it turns, it queers Aesop's fable that we need to beware of wolves in sheep clothing. It queers the whole thing. And that is, that is with governmental support being distributed to all primary one school children who are aged between four to five in Scotland. The classic <gasps> example of queering 
literature. And it makes me chilled. This is so remarkable because this is a story about distrusting your fear instincts. I know. You, you talked about the visceral reactions that we have, the natural differences we have. I mean, when I was a baby, I was afraid of men. My mom used to tell me that if, and if anyone had a beard or a mustache, I would just start crying. No, oh, you're right as there. A toddler. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, to, to tell, to teach children that they shouldn't be afraid of, Obviously, this character of the wolf is not meant to just describe someone different. It's meant to describe a threat. And look, I understand that in our, our world, which is a globalized place, we all have to encounter difference and we should not assume the worst about difference. But we're talking about children and the attempt to keep their uh, senses sharp. Yeah. And to learn how to protect themselves. And to trust their fear instinct. And so we have to be inclusive. We have to be tolerant. We have to be very accepting of difference. And we have to negotiate that with our fear instinct. And to, to push that underground and to put shame around our fear instinct is psychologically very, very damaging. And let's face it, more damaging to women and children than it is to to males. Yeah. That's really powerful to think about. So we don't really know how did what started as a, a beautiful theory to subvert everything and question everything. I remember when I was a kid, there was a piece of graffiti on a wall that I used to pass every day and it said, everything you know is wrong. <laughs> and every day I used to pass everything you know is wrong and I'd look at it and I think where and this is before the internet where did that come from and is that true and it just made me think so much yeah and you know little did I know I was I was <laughs> I was embedded in queer theory but I, was, <laughs> but I was thinking about a concept that was growing you know what I mean? This would have been the 1980s. And by 1990s, queer theory was up and running saying, yeah, yeah, maybe everything you do know is wrong and let's subvert everything. And when we subvert everything, you need to be careful because you can throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm -hmm. And I, I'd like to ex give some examples of how this looks to any parents who are watching, teachers, therapists who work with young people. I, I hear a lot of times from trans influencers on YouTube. So there are lots of young, young teenagers and young adults who identify as transgender and they will make these kind of informational videos for their audiences, sometimes of millions of kids. And, and they say things like, you know, there's no right or wrong way to be trans. Being trans has nothing to do with when you discovered you were trans. Don't worry about the old medical diagnoses. You know, trans is something you decide for yourself. It has nothing to do with how masculine or feminine you are. So again, you know, when you strip something of any kind of cat categorical definition, you get a complete free-for-all. And this is happening in other areas too, because part of our job as therapists, when we work with a dysphoric person, is to do what we think is the least kind of harm that can be the outcome for this person. And if you are questioning everything, 
That includes questioning what is an objectively good outcome. So you can no longer say it's objectively better not to medicalize someone because that's not for you to decide. It's for the individual person to just decide because there's no such thing as a hierarchy. So what's better or worse? There shouldn't be a better or worse. So it makes it really hard to even you know, provide some accurate reflections with a young person or a client about what is medical harm. Because if it's a, quote, trans body, you're not supposed to subject your, you know, heteronormative medical industry perspective on what is healthy or not healthy. And I, I didn't realize until I started studying queer theory how it becomes quite anti heteronormative kind of um, thought. And then I'm like, well, now what started as a celebratory expanse of let's widen out the kind of um, the boundaries of society becomes what I would gather quite um, critical of everything we know. And like people like George Orwell, who I would consider one of the greats, really one of the greats, one of, a great thinker. You know, he said that lovely quote, freedom is the freedom to say that two plus two makes four. If that is granted, all else follows. And I'm there nodding my head saying, yes, that's everything I stand for. Queer theorists would say, yeah, who are you to say two plus two equals four? And it was even trending on Twitter, two plus two equals five. And they were arguing it, you know. And it's like, whoa, we cannot do that. We are not so special. There's a real vibe around these days, in the last 10 years or so, of the exceptionalism of this era and everything we think has never been thought before. It's incredibly arrogant. And we're kind of dismissing all the wisdom of thousands of years of existence and millions of years. And so suddenly in 2010, we all suddenly came up with some great new theories that mess around with language and mess around with our head and turn into two plus two equals five. Who are you to say it's different? Mm -hmm. And that's when you think, yeah, it might be clever, but it's not wise. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's, that's important. Yeah. Well, and that's where I start because I know I was texting you about the rage I sometimes get around queer theory. That's where I get the rage because it's like we can't live by being clever. We have to bring in the wisdom of the ages. And, and the wisdom of the ages should be grounded on how to live well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when I think about even the way queer theory has impacted, you know, mental illness, there's all of these campaigns to destigmatize everything, you know, destigmatize mental illness, destigmatize this or that. Depsychopathize gender dysphoria. Yeah. So yeah. it's not a condition that has any need for any attention from a psychotherapist or a psychologist because it's it's queer. Who cares? Just do it. Even things like um, dissociative identity disorder, there are now queer theorists who say, I live with multiple personalities and multiple identities and my workplace should accommodate that and I should be able to, you know, just decide. Accommodate it. Yeah, accommodate yeah, it. And ASD, people with extreme um, autism, and there might be, there might be something in it, so long as it doesn't become oppressive and it turns into kind of diktats. But AST, people with, you know, extreme autism, like really quite heavy, you know, um, autistic people are saying, yeah, society needs to accommodate that. I don't 
buy anything to do with ABA, which is a way of, you know, guiding children. It's a really, it's become really controversial to even say ABA among people. It's a, it's a type of kind of. It's applied behavioral analysis. I actually worked in ABA for like five years. Did you? I have my own critiques of it. Mm -hmm. We must do an episode around that. We will. It's it's fascinating. But it's like what we consider maybe might be helpful for children. People are saying, no, 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 no. You need to accommodate everything. Don't help people. Accommodate it. And I'm like, can we do both? Well, and that's the difference between, you know, providing opportunities and visibility for people with differences and subverting the entire hierarchy. That's the difference. You know, um, I saw, for example, there was a movie called The Witches based on the Roald Dahl book. Um, And uh, what's the name of the actress who was in Les Mis? What is her name? I have no idea. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, the main actress in it, it, there's a scene where, first of all, Roald Dahl wrote this book. So all of these characters are based on his you know, his creation. And all of these witches have a convention and they take off their gloves and they take off their shoes and they all have these kind of tri-claws. So it's like three fingers with these long nails and they're very kind of odd looking. So anyway, this is considered to be, you know, this really spooky aspect of the witches. Well, there was an organization uh, that advocates for people with limb differences. So these are all people who have some sort of abnormality, a physical abnormality. So even the word abnormality, I've just been striked yeah. out by the queer theorists. But basically this un- atypical difference. limb, it's called yeah. a limb difference. And they had a whole campaign against this film, Stella. And they yeah. came up with a, a, a doc, like a little movie where they all say, I have a limb difference. I have a limb difference. And you know what? I'm all for not uh, patron, um, not um, infantilizing people who have a physical difference. I am completely behind that. And I have said for a really long time, it's not right for us to infantilize those who may be blind or who are in a wheelchair. I think people have amazing capacity to live with meaning and purpose and and pride and inspiration, regardless of what their body looks like. But what happens with these kinds of campaigns and with this kind of queering is that we're supposed to pretend as though having a difference in your limbs is totally not even unusual. When statistically, objectively, if I saw somebody with a limb that looked very deformed or different, I would notice it. It's a visceral reaction. And it doesn't mean that I should judge that person or dismiss them or think anything about them. But your, your biological instinct is to say, oh, that's different. And then you do the kind of compassionate or thoughtful thing to process what that means. But all of these kind of queering campaigns are really about trying to dismiss that there are actual differences and suppress, suppress our analysis and our responses. And I think we need to hold tight and say, yeah, I have a response and I need to discuss it and analyze it. And then we as a society, society can have a better and deeper understanding. And once we're being suppressed and we're not allowed to think, and we're not allowed to speak about certain things, well, then we are in a, an oppressive regime. And that's sadly where we seem to have moved to. In, in relation to, to these theories and practices. 
And this is in contrast with what we really think the antidote is, which is to be able to look at these things, not from a judgmental place, but from a curious place, a symbolic place, a like, what does this mean place? And that's different from pathologizing, but it is coming from a place of wanting to hold these ideas carefully. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is partially sponsored by RIME, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. RIME is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 